I invite you now to take your study guides out that you were given. Those will come in especially handy today. I think today's talk is going to feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, and for that I apologize, but we've got some important things to say, and I feel really strongly about what uh, we're talking about today. We're talking about the notion of truth. You can take your Bibles out as well, have those ready. We're going to be in the Gospel of John. John is the fourth book of the New Testament, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can either get up right now and go to the hospitality station and get your Bible as a gift from the story. Um, we'd love for you to have a Bible today, or you can follow along on the study guide. The scriptures are all on your study guides, and they'll be on the screens. Sound good? Part two of God Loves Science. So, between the age of 20 and 22, I decided that I was an atheist. And it wasn't sort of this in vogue, stylish thing to do. I wasn't trying to be a cool kid. I was a thoughtful kid. I was pretty sure of what I believed, that I, I couldn't really buy into the Christianity that I had been raised to buy into. And I remember the day I made that decision when I was 20 years old, I was barely 20, and I was sitting in a classroom in my college waiting for this philosophy of religion class to begin. It was the fall of 1999, and so I was probably sitting there listening uh, to, uh, I don't know, Backstreet Boys on my Discman, um, or uh, reading a newspaper story about how Y2K was going to bring about the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> And well, the saddest thing about all that stuff I just said is that if you're under 25, the most shocking part of it was that I was reading a newspaper because <laughs> nobody knows what those are anymore. But I sat there ready for this class to begin. And then my professor, this rock star professor, storms into the room, marches up to the front of the room wearing this T-shirt that says this, what's become a pretty common meme on it uh, now. And it says, Christianity the belief that some cosmic zombie, some cosmic Jewish zombie can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him that you accept him as your master so that he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. Makes perfect sense. And then he stood there and he said, this is what Christians claim to believe. And he laughed about it and the whole class laughed about it. And it was in that moment, I'm not proud of it, that I decided that I could not believe the stuff Christians were supposed to believe anymore, that it was not for me, that I was too smart, I was going to be too intellectual to believe that stuff to be true. Now, uh, you know, I, I, I remember making that decision, and my first emotion was feeling shame for ever having believed it in the first place. And I felt angry at the people who had coerced me, I, I thought, or forced me into believing the stuff on my favorite professor's t-shirt. He was so smart, so brilliant, so funny. He obviously got it. He knew the truth. And I had been fooled into thinking something else, something so silly and ridiculous and childish was the truth. And I enter into this sermon today assuming that there are people in this room who sit now where I sat in that classroom when I was 20 years old. I assume that there are people in this room who are walking the same journey that I have walked. So if you're one of those people that has the spiritual gift of faith and you've never had a doubt in your life, I love you, I admire you, I envy you, this sermon is not for you. This sermon is for people who have walked the path of doubt, People who have wondered if they really believe the stuff Christians are supposed to believe. You might even go to church while you wonder those things. I went to church when I was in my atheist season. 
I went through the motions. I didn't want to lose all my friends that I had made and things like that, but I didn't believe it. I wasn't with Jesus. I was just going through the motions. Some of you, I believe, are probably in that same position. That's where I begin today's sermon, part two of, uh, of this series, God Loves Science. We're going to start in the Bible, uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John, Chapter 18 is where we'll begin today. If you'll turn with me or look in your study guides, John chapter 18, where there's this kind of uh, well-known passage where Jesus has been arrested and he's been taken to Pontius Pilate, where uh, Pontius Pilate is staying in Jerusalem um, because he happens to be there this, this weekend that Jesus gets arrested. And he's taken to Pilate to be sentenced. And Pilate asks Jesus, so are you a king? And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. It's for this reason that I have come into the world. It's for this reason that I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? And I love this question from Pilate, who was no doubt highly educated and thoughtful and intellectual in the first century Greco-Roman world. And I love this question from him because it reflects not only his culture, but the prevailing winds of our own culture. Many, many people that I know who are my age and younger especially are asking the same question in the same spirit that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Because we are dying to discover something that we can rely on, something that's really true, something that won't let us down. Because every generation represented in this room has been dramatically disappointed by the institutions that promised to never let us down. By the institutions that promised absolute truth. We've been disappointed by the institutions of marriage and family, by and large. We've been disappointed grossly by religion and religious leaders. We've been even more grossly disappointed by government. Can I get an amen? government and politics do not deliver the truth they promised. And you can't even put your trust in Bill Cosby in the world we live in. You can't put your trust in Jared from Subway. And don't even think of hanging your hopes on the Houston Astros because they will break your hearts every single time. Every time they will disappoint you. Welcome to Houston, Eric. Hashtag Houston sports. <laughs> so while those institutions have disappointed us, what's happened over the past century really is the emergence of science as the only trustworthy mechanism of truth, the only trustworthy place where truth can be found. And so for many, many of you, for many people your age, the word truth itself has become synonymous with Tested in a lab, lab tested, verifiable. That's what truth has come to mean for us because all the other kinds of truth that can't be tested in a lab have let us down again and again, or so we think. And so the only kind of truth that is left that's worth hanging your hopes on is the kind of truth that science delivers us. And so like Pontius Pilate, we ask, what is truth? 
and science gives us a little bit of satisfaction. This, however, has led to something called scientism. This idea that science is the only verifiable, trustworthy source of truth has led to scientism, which is not science. Scientism is a perversion of science, but the two are getting so confused with one another, the line between science and scientism, the average person I don't think really knows right now. Scientism has arisen within science. Some scientists are a part of scientism, but they're not practicing good science when they profess scientism. Here's scientism, an exaggerated trust and the efficacy of the methods of natural science applied to all areas of investigation. What this means is that not only do you have an exaggerated trust in the results science delivers, but you apply those results to fields of study outside the reach of science. And so you begin trying to answer non-scientific questions with scientific methods in the search for some truth you can rely on. And this is uh, the definition of scientism. Many, many people in their 20s and 30s are in this frame of mind. There's no truth that's not scientific truth. Now, this presents several challenges to people who are persuaded by this mindset. First of all, it presents challenges within the church. It presents challenges to us as Christians because we've been told to believe every word this book says. And understood literally, this book says God created everything in six days about 9,000 years ago, and the scientific record disputes that. Literally understood, a man named Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. The scientific record would not agree that that's possible. Understood literally, there was a flood in Noah's day that covered the entire earth. Archaeological records indicate there was a flood, but it was more of a regional flood, not a whole earth flood during that Time. And then we have the miracles of Jesus, the pretty important miracles of the virgin birth and the resurrection around which the Christian faith is built. We're going to talk specifically about miracles next week. Come back for that conversation. So, uh, so that presents a challenge to people within the church. The second challenge presented by scientism is a challenge outside of the church. It is a challenge to those who profess this new faith in the scientific uh, advancements. So science, as awesome as it is, is not a source of truth. I hope you'll hear me there, and I hope you hear me as a sort of an honest uh, thinker and not just as some kind of a biased preacher. Good scientists know science is not a source of truth. Any scientist who claims science is anything more than uh, about probabilities, any more, anything more than about uh, uh, um, uh, um, predictions. In the natural world, when science goes beyond that, it's no longer science. It becomes its own religion. And that religion, scientism as we know it, it takes on the same characteristics as every other worldly religion. It's led by men who have biases. It's led by men who have an agenda. And the same is true with scientism. And people are starting to, to open up their minds to this idea that even if a scientist says something, if it's outside the realm of science, it's not necessarily true or verifiable. So that's happening in this world. We're discovering that people adhering to scientism, the leaders of this scientism religion, aren't just objective scientists. They, in fact, are anti-religious bigots, sort of. Like, for example, when the uh, uh, atheist philosopher Sam Harris 
was asked a, a question. He said, if I had a magic wand and I could get rid of either rape or religion, I would not hesitate to get rid of religion. This is not science. This is not science. This is religious extremism dressed in a lab coat. These guys are anti-Christian evangelists, evangelicals, and people are beginning to see that for what it is. And many, many people my age and younger especially are beginning to see that the, the trust we placed in science has been betrayed by some people calling themselves scientists. It's just one more disappointment. So where does that leave us as a culture? What does that mean for us in our search, our natural human search for truth? I think where it leaves us mostly is with a bunch of people who've decided to just stop searching for the truth. The result of all this is that we live in a culture where there are generations of people who have decided that they're tired of the search. The fastest growing religious segment in the United States, according to the most recent census data, is the segment called unaffiliated. Not affiliated with any religious group. Not atheist, not Christian evangelical, not anything, just unaffiliated, is the fastest growing segment of religious identity in the United States. Not only is it the fastest growing, it's also the youngest segment of religious identity in the United States. To give you an example, the average age of a United Methodist in America is 57 years old. Got work to do there. The average age of a, some of you are feeling pretty young right now. The average age of a, of a person identifying as unaffiliated is 36 years old. So what I think is happening, my instinct tells me, my intuition tells me that we are increasingly living in a world where people have come to terms with the fact that, or the idea that there's no absolute truth at all. That we should just stop trying. And we should just let your truth be your truth and my truth can be my truth. And your job as an American is just to find whatever makes you happy. And whatever makes you happy should be your truth. And whatever makes me happy should be my truth because you are the most important person in your life. And I'm the most important person in my life. And the worst thing you can do to me is tell me your truth should be my truth. And the worst thing I can do to you, I, I would never dehumanize you by telling you that my truth should be your truth. You just be happy. And, and, and I'll be happy. That's, that is increasingly the mindset of, uh, of young Americans especially, uh, is that uh, every truth is created equal. And that we, in our political correctness, should just assume that your, your truth is okay and my truth is okay. And the same thing uh, is true for religions, have you noticed? Have you noticed how many people lately are saying that every religion basically says the same thing? You heard people say that? All right, so that's people being nice, that's people being polite, or it's people being stupid, one or the other, because anyone who says every religion says basically the same thing is just not paying attention. And I don't want to be a jerk about this. I just told you last Sunday you can't be Christian and a jerk, so I'm not going to be a jerk about it. I'm not even being theological about it. I'm just being logical about it here. This is just logic. This is human logic. Every religion does not say and believe and practice the same things. No religion is better than any other. 
Well, yeah, they might be. If you're logical about it. And some people just, some of the smartest people that I know say these kinds of things. You can't say logically that every truth is created equal. If every truth is true, then nothing is true. If every religion is right, then none of them are right. Uh, Not all truths are created equal. So, for example, I'll just say this. If your truth is that white people are superior to all other people, your truth sucks. Like, I'm not going to tell you that your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. My truth is better than your truth. Because I believe all people to be created equal with the same sacred word. The same could be said for religions. But all religions say the same thing and lead to the same place. If your religion tells you that someone who doesn't believe what you believe should have their head cut off, it is an inferior religion to a religion that says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm not going to mince words about it. It's just, that's just the way it is. There, there are truths to be told in the world. But all religions basically believe the same things. I'm a Christian and a Buddhist. I'm sorry. No. You can't be a Christian and a Buddhist. I mean, I wish. I wish you could. It was like a buffet and you have some of this and some of that. Like, I wish. Zen Buddhists don't even believe in God, okay? Like, that's not possible to reconcile the two. Is he telling me I have to stop doing yoga? It sounds like he's saying I have to stop doing yoga. I'll get up and leave right now. Do all the yoga that you want. Just know that not all truths are created equal. Amen. Can we agree on that? All right. Okay. 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 All right. I'm glad we got that uh, out of the way. Now, as a culture, we are naturally suspicious of truth claims. I am not debating our suspicion. I think that we should be suspicious of truth claims. I want us to know where that suspicion comes from. It is a product of the scientific revolution. That's why it has something to do with our God Love Science series. As a product of the scientific revolution, something came about uh, called the hermeneutics of suspicion. The hermeneutics of suspicion were a post-enlightenment, post, uh, uh, post-scientific revolution phenomenon. Uh, look up the work of Foucault and you will uh, become familiar with the hermeneutics of suspicion, which basically says uh, that we have the assumption that all statements of truth are attempts to control and oppress people. This is the definition of the hermeneutics of suspicion. In other words, whenever somebody comes along and says, everybody should believe this, your first reaction is to be suspicious. If somebody, if you came along, let's say I came along and said, Everyone should eat vegetables. You would be like, I wonder why he's saying that. I wonder if he's in the vegetable business. I wonder if he stands to profit from people eating vegetables. Maybe he wants all the cookies for himself. That's what y'all would be thinking. Hashtag Michelle Obama, right? That's what, that's, everybody's like, why does she want kids to eat vegetables? You know, like, we have a hermeneutic of suspicion. It's a natural sort of 21st century reaction to absolute truth 
claims because we believe that every truth claim is a human effort to control people and oppress them because our experience has been that whoever claims to have absolute truth just wants to keep people in their place, just wants to control them, just wants to oppress them. But here's the logical problem with the hermeneutics of suspicion. Here's the problem with being absolute about your suspicion. If it's true that all statements of truth are attempts to control and oppress people, then what is this? This too is an attempt to control and oppress people. Suspicion itself can be an attempt to control and to oppress. Let me give you another example. If you come to me and you say, there's no such thing as absolute truth. You have just offered an absolute that by your own definition cannot be true. If you come to me and say, anyone who claims to have the truth is a tyrant, you are a what? A tyrant. Good. Okay, you get it. You're with me here. There's a logical disconnect that very smart people seem to be missing when we say these absolute phrases. Okay. John chapter 8. Uh, let's go there for a second. John chapter 8. Uh, just in your study guides is fine. John chapter 8 says, the truth set you free. This is Jesus's response to the debate about truth going on in his life. You see, Jesus himself would agree with your suspicion. Jesus was also intuitively suspicious of the people in his world who claimed to have absolute truth. Who were they? The Pharisees. Jesus was obviously suspicious of the Pharisees who controlled people with their claims of truth. The Pharisees said, if you aren't like us, God hates you. God doesn't want you. God won't love you unless you follow the same rules we follow. And Jesus said that truth is false because truth sets people free. That's the distinction Jesus makes. Jesus doesn't make the same logical misstep we make. We make the logical misstep that if the Pharisees claimed absolute truth and if the Pharisees obviously wanted to control people, then clearly anyone who claims truth wants to control people. Jesus doesn't make that claim. Jesus said, it depends on what the truth is. If the truth oppresses people, it's false. If it sets people free, it's the truth. This sounds like a very American thing for Jesus to say. Jesus could have said this and hashtagged America at the end, and we would all be like, yeah, Jesus, freedom and truth. Truth is freedom. But we don't really know what freedom is, do we? Because we have become convinced that freedom means doing and saying whatever you want to do and say at any given moment in time, thinking whatever you want to think. I have two kids, seven and five years old. My daughter is seven, son is five, and they have driven me completely up the wall this week. And so I'm going to preach about it for a second. I swear, two weeks ago they were best friends, and now they just fight constantly, and they say awful things to each other. My kids are cursing now, which is a, a, they're preacher's kids, seven and five, and they say curse words now. So y'all say a prayer. But, all right, so my daughter says something awful to her brother. Her brother cries and comes and tells me, and I go to my daughter, and I say, why did you say that? And she says something like, I can say what I want. It's a free country. She blames the Constitution being a terrible sister. It's a free country. 
But she's just expressing a broader truth that's present in our culture. If you're free, you can do and say whatever you want. It doesn't matter the consequences or the content of what you're saying. Doing, saying, believing whatever you want, though we know, is not really freedom. I remember hearing a really famous local artist talking about her talent and her work, and she said, I can't begin the creative process until I know my limitations. And what she meant by that was, as a painter, she can't begin to paint until she knows the parameters of her canvas. And for every good artist, there, is always, there are always boundaries. And the same goes for any kind of truth. Truth always begins and ends with, uh, with uh, uh, freedom always begins and ends with uh, boundaries that come from truth. Any, anything else uh, is not the truth. Example, I played basketball when I was in high school, all right? I grew up in a very small town, and so my school was very small, and I'm a fairly tall guy, but because my town was so small, I was the tallest guy on my team. So I'm not even really that tall by basketball standards, but in my town, I thought I was a giant, and so <laughs> it's all I knew. And I was dominant on the basketball court in Queen City, Texas. You know, like we played other small towns and I averaged like 14 points and 10 rebounds and five blocks a game. And I thought this is going to go somewhere. I think I could make a living on this. You know, I, I went back and read my high school yearbook recently. And at the end of the yearbook, it had this question. What are your goals after graduation? What are your life goals after graduation? And 18-year-old me wrote in response to that question, I plan to play pro basketball. <laughs> if not in the NBA, then overseas somewhere. <laughs> I was totally serious. I had no business believing that. It was never going to be true. I was slow. I was scrawny. I couldn't jump. I was weak, you know. But relative to East Texas competition, I was pretty good. Now... I believed a truth that wasn't necessarily uh, true. But culture told me, culture told me that I could be whatever I wanted to be. My parents, God bless them, told me I could be whatever I want to be. Just be happy. You can do whatever you want to do. Just be happy. I mean, if you grew up in that same culture, you've been given ribbons and trophies your whole life just for showing up. You didn't even win anything. You just showed up and you won. <sighs> Because you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. And they call that freedom. It's not really freedom, is it? Freedom would have been somebody taking 18-year-old me by the shoulders and going, look, no one will ever, ever pay money to watch you play basketball. <laughs> Your jump shot looks like you're having a seizure. Here's a Bible, you should learn it. It might be your only chance at making a living <laughs> later in life. I might not have wanted to hear that. I might have rejected it initially, but it would have been the truth. And in some ways, it might have set me free because I spent thousands of hours on the basketball court in my teens, maybe having fun, but living towards some truth that wasn't even true. Here's what I want to say today. Like it or not, something in this world is true. Take it or leave it. Believe it or not, there is something that is right.
when other things are wrong. There's something that is true and other things are false. Not, I don't want to be rude or arrogant about this. Uh, I don't want to be even religious about this. I just want us to acknowledge that everybody knows the truth exists. And everybody, by the lives that we lead and the priorities that we keep, everybody makes truth claims every single day. The Christian truth, the Christian truth claim is that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14. I hope you will highlight or underline this passage in your Bible if you have your Bibles with you or when you get home. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. What I want you to know today is that this word for word right here, capitalized W, word, the Word of God is not a book. We call this the Word of God, and that's fine. The Word of God in the Bible is Jesus. And the word, let's go back to that, please. The word for word here is logos. Uh, we don't have a good translation for logos in English. Uh, logos is a Greek word that was fairly commonly doubt, uh, 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 dealt with in Greek philosophy in the first century. First century Greek philosophers really wanted to know what the logos of the universe was, and so they talked and wrote about it at length. What is the logic behind the universe? What is the reason that we're here? What is the purpose of life? And by the time John writes his gospel at the end of the first century, basically most Greco-Roman intellectuals had decided that there was no logos. If there was, we're never going to know it. So we should just enjoy our lives. There's no logic behind this. There's no reason. There's no purpose. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry. And then John begins his biography of Jesus by saying, in the beginning was the Logos, and it was Jesus. John says, Jesus is the purpose. Jesus is the truth. This was a clear shot across the bow at John's prevalent culture. It was a shot across the bow of first century Greek thought, and it's a shot across the bow of our own prevailing winds as well. This idea that Jesus is the truth, not a truth, not my truth, not your truth. John says Jesus is the truth. I know this is shocking. If if you're walking the same walk that I've walked, that same journey of doubt, that sounds suspicious. It sounds like somebody wants to coerce you into something. It sounds like you're going to be exploited if you give yourself to this truth claim, and it's just going to let you down again. It sounds like just another power play. Here's what I want you to see today. The Christian truth claim truly is different. Jesus is unique among the truth claims put forth by other world religions. It's not the same thing. It's not saying the same thing. Every other major religion that I know of says the truth is found in a book. The truth is found in a set of laws, in a set of rules. And if you follow those mandates, if you're obedient, then God might accept you. The Christian truth claim is that truth is found in a person. Truth has become a person, not a book, not a set of rules that you have to follow in order to merit God's love. Truth is a person, according to the Christian truth claim, and the goal is not your obedience. The goal is not to control you. The objective is love. 
The objective is relationship. And this sets what we believe apart from every other truth claim that I know of. Now, it is the easiest thing in the world to take what Christians claim to be true and to make a caricature of it like my professor did, to make it sound absurd. Any 14-year-old can take any set of beliefs and make a t-shirt out of them. I could stand here today and make a t-shirt making fun of atheism and how absurd it is to believe that nothing came from nothing and nothing happened in here. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It's tempting. It's tempting. I love atheist friends, but I'm not not, going to be a jerk like I said last week. You can do it. Any 12-year-old can make fun of other people. I just want to share with you real quick, five more minutes, my journey back to Christianity and why I stand here today. There were two questions that I had to come to terms with, two questions I had to ask myself honestly and objectively as I wandered through the borderlands of belief. First, is to believe in God more Likely, Uh, is it more likely than not that God exists? Is what I want to say. What do I do about God? So, on the one hand, if God exists, then it's reasonable to assume that there is a logos behind creation. There is a logic to the universe. There is a reason why everything exists the way it does. Your life has a purpose. My life has a purpose. Everything that we experience in this life is authentic and real. The love and affection that you feel for one another, the sense of transcendence and purpose that you experience, it's all real. But if there is no God, then everything that we know to be true is really not Because everything that we experience in this life is just some kind of a cosmic accident that no one knows or understands why happened. Richard Dawkins, the great leader of the atheist scientism movement, had this to say about this accident. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. If there is no God, this is your reality. I just want us to see and weigh the alternatives and ask ourselves honest questions. Because if there is no God, any love you think you've ever felt or experienced in your life was never authentic or legitimate love. It was your highly evolved brain playing some trick on you for the survival of your species. It was an evolutionary trick your mind played on you to make you think you love your wife so you'll want to sleep with her and make more babies so the species will survive. When you stand over your children at night and look at them sleeping in bed and you love them and you think you would stand in front of a train for them, that's not a legitimate human emotion. In some ways, that's evolution gone wrong, they will say. What you really are experiencing is an evolutionary biological trick. Your mind is telling you that you love this person sleeping in your house so that you won't eat them when you get hungry, so that you won't kill them when you get angry, so that the species can survive. If there is no God, this is your reality. I just want you to know that if you say no to God, this has to be what you're saying yes to. We're not even talking about Jesus yet. We're just talking about God. This is the beginning of my journey back. I chose to believe that my experience and the evidence before me 
uh, made it seem as though it's more plausible, more reasonable to believe that God exists than that he doesn't. My skeptical mind came to the conclusion that it's more likely that God is real. The second question I had to come to terms with was a little more specific. If God is real, then what do I do with Jesus? What do I do with this man around whom the world's greatest movement was built? This man, this first century nobody, this Palestinian rabbi who died a criminal's death, humiliated on a cross, and yet billions of people have given their lives to him. Thousands of people have been sacrificed and burned and crucified for him. What do I do with this man who inspired the world's best-selling book? In the words of C.S. Lewis, this man is either a brilliant liar, he's a crazy person, or he is who he said he was. And we have to make that decision. Jesus was someone who truly existed in history. Basically, no one disputes that. What do we do with him? Is he who he said he was? Or is he some part of some conspiracy? Some lie? And has the world fallen for some great hoax of which you and I are a part today? So I analyzed the evidence before me, and I analyzed my own experience as well. I'm not saying I was entirely objective in this. We all have our own experiences that play into our analysis. But I analyzed that given my belief in how we feel when we look at the stars and how we sense that we are connected in some great way to creation, some transcendent way, given my belief that the way I feel when I look at my wife is more than just evolutionary biology and the way that I feel toward my children. And the crazy part is I feel the same way toward your children when I see them walking in the hall. They're not even my flesh and blood. Why should I care about them? They're not mine, but I see your kids and I just love them. I'd take them home with me if you didn't. And I, I think that's, that's something to pay attention to. I think it's more than just our biology. And then I looked at 10,000 years of human experience with transcendence, human experience with beauty, human experience with love and affection and sacrifice. And I thought to myself, would these things be real, be authentic, and persist as long as they have if they were just a trick? And if these things are true, what does that say about the nature of God? And if this God were to reveal himself to humanity in the form of a person, what would that person look like? And I decided that that person, if God came and walked among us, that person would be love embodied. I would expect that person to invite relationship because I understand creation to be relational. I would expect that person to be powerful but not coercive. I would expect that person, that God-man, to not just coerce people into some submissive form of flattery, but to be in relationship with one another, give people the chance to walk away and say no. And I would expect that person to love the one that walks away just as much as he loves the one that doesn't. And it occurred to my skeptical mind over time that if I believe in God, and Jesus is the embodiment of the God I believe in, 
that he is who he said he was. Now, some of you I know are struggling to believe some of this. You can't wait for all of this to be over. You think becoming a Christian means becoming one of those people, one of those Christians. And I got to be honest, in my experience, most atheists and angry agnostics that I've met have no problem with the logic of the Christian faith. They have a problem with Christians. Becoming a Christian means becoming one of those people. I don't think so. If that's where you are today, I just want you to have the courage to weigh the facts, to weigh the evidence in front of you without letting some broken people who wronged you in the past stand in your way of making a truthful decision. And I want, to, I want you to encourage you to have the courage to address these three things today, to believe these three things today. First, something in the world is true. Second, it's more likely than not, given the evidence, that God exists. And third, if God exists, then it is reasonable to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, living God in the flesh, coming not to exploit you like other truth claims have exploited you and let you down, but he came to be exploited. Philippians chapter 2 says, even though he was God, he didn't think that having the power of God was worth exploiting. Instead, he humbled himself, took the form of a slave, and died a humiliating death on a cross. You see, Jesus, if he was who he said he was, he took your exploitation so you will never have to be exploited again. All he offers you today is relationship. Would you join me in prayer? God, give us the courage, those of us especially who've been on the borderlands of belief, those of us who have left you and left belief in you, left the church, even though we might be here today or we might be listening online, with some sense of curiosity, God, give us the courage to see the world for what it is and to search for you as you are. Not as religion has said you are or not as some preacher has said you are, but for who you really are, who we perceive you to be, God, through the wonders of your creation, through the beauty of our relationships, through the melody of the songs that we sing, through this simple meal that we're about to share. We thank you, God, because of who you are, the invitation to be a part of this communion is open to everyone, no matter what we believed, no matter where we spent last night, no matter who we are or what we have said and done in the past. All we have to be today is not religious, is not perfect, just hungry, thirsty, God. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with you today about our hunger and our thirst and help us to come with hearts that are open to receive you. In Jesus' name, amen.